Today, the Podvocate Board is sitting down together to discuss how we handle the downfall of public figures. How do we balance the contributions of artists, athletes, and other figures with their crimes, indiscretions, or other failings? We're mindful of the fact that this topic will strike different chords with different people, and we would love to hear your feedback. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this is The Podvocate. We are law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the season finale of The Podvocate. This is a very special episode of The Podvocate as we have the entire team here in the studio today for a roundtable discussion on tainted public figures, people who have made significant contributions to society but have also committed moral transgressions that drew public condemnation. Today we will be discussing these figures and their contributions and whether those contributions can be appreciated despite the misdeed. The transgressions of the figures discussed have been confirmed, so there will be no discussion of people who have allegedly done something bad. So with that, uh, I am your one of your hosts today, Matt Doran, and we'll go around and introduce you to the rest of the team for our season finale. I'm Radhika Sutherland. I am Jacob Kupferman. I am Haley Burridge. And I am Jim Alritz. So we will just dive right in. And the first question that we're going to discuss is, can the public figure be separated from the transgression? So as Wesley Morris wrote in the New York Times, can we perform moral surgery to save the contribution? What if the transgression had nothing to do with the contribution? So I wanted to touch on the art from the artist separation a bit because I studied music in undergrad, so I do have a bit of a background in this. And one of the major figures in what we broadly call classical music that this question comes up a lot for is Richard Wagner. Wagner is the type of composer who you have to talk about in a music conservatory. His music is so influential that you can't erase him. He changed the way that we did compositions. And for lay people who aren't interested in that conservatory level music theory, uh, among his contributions to popular music include the bridal chorus. and also Ride of the Valkyries. And so there's no escaping Wagner. He is part of the pop cultural zeitgeist in a way that we will never be rid of. He was also an anti-Semite, a very, very major anti-Semite. Wrote an essay that uh, the translation is Jewishness in Music, a critical kind of view on the influence of Jews in German cultural and society at that time. And this is pre-Nazis, but Adolf Hitler adopted Wagner's music and saw it as part of this perfect German ideal. And so when we're in a conservatory setting, we can't not talk about the music, but we also can't ignore the fact that this is the person who made it. So that becomes part of the discussion. So for someone that lived 150 years ago and died quite some time ago, in my mind, because this is coming up so much lately, I feel like I have to create almost a personal rubric. Like what category does this fall into, this transgression, and how will I process it moving forward? Because there's so many of these. They come up constantly, people that we all care about. It was 150 years ago. He's dead. He did contribute things that we can't escape from. So if we're going to talk about him, as long as we are adding in 
that he was a horrible person as well. Like we're not reflecting upon him fondly through the lens of history. So then that sort of presents the evolution of this conversation where, you know, Thriller comes out in 1984, I believe. So are we going to wait 100 years before we can again appreciate this music? Or are we just going to have to now, every time we talk about Thriller, every time we talk about Michael Jackson, start that conversation by saying, exactly like you did in your music theory course, listen, this is somebody who changed music, changed pop culture, changed literally changed lives. You know, are, are we now going to, moving forward, need to contextualize that conversation every single time? And, and based on the precedent that sort of Wagner has set, the answer seems to be yes. You know, as we sort of dig into this conversation, um, Radhika, to your point, it's not going to be binary, right? Like there's never going to be a, this person fits in this box. This is the severity of the crimes they committed. And now this is how long we have to wait to appreciate it. It's going to have to remain case by case. But that's what makes this conversation so important and so um, so layered. Just before we move forward, I read this uh, tweet months ago, and I knew we would be talking about this, and I saved it because I keep trying to bring all the conversations I have about this topic back to this tweet. Um, Dylan Marin, who's the host of the podcast, Conversations with People Who Hate Me, which is a great podcast if you guys haven't heard it. Um, his tweet said... Cancel culture is an imprecise term that falsely groups together three real but separate things. Justified criticism, unnecessary pylons, and mob mentality. And I think we're going to talk about figures today that fit into all three of these categories. But the hard thing about the ones we're talking about right now, Michael Jackson and our president, those are, I think, fall under justified criticism. And yet they perpetuate and we continue to lift them up as a society. So you can separate it into justified criticism, unnecessary pylons, and mom mentality. That's a criticism of cancel culture, quote unquote, itself. That, that, that term has become part of our zeitgeist in 2019. Um, but how do you reconcile that with someone actually deserving to be canceled when our society refuses to? That's what I struggle with. One of the individuals that I did research on, Ray Rice, is an, an, a former NFL player. He was a Super Bowl champion. He was a three-time Pro Bowl selection, two-time second-team All-Star Pro, Pro Bowl selection. And um, many of you, I'm sure, have seen the video that TMZ released a few years ago where Ray knocked out his then-fiance, who is now his wife, Janae, which caused her to hit her head against the railing in the elevator and become unconscious. Then Ray proceeded to drag her unconscious body without showing any emotional remorse in the video out of the elevator. Michael Vick, I know, is another one that you did research on. I think that we have a few different perspectives on Michael Vick just within this group of five people. Haley, I don't know, why don't you start there? And then, because I think that is a good segue into a conversation about forgiveness and what can we forgive as a society? Well, first, let's remind any listeners who don't have all the facts, what exactly did Michael Vick do? Uh, well, he did quite a few things, actually, but we're going to focus on his bad news dogfighting um, corporation, if you want to call it that. Um, so Michael Vick is also a former American football quarterback who played 13 seasons in the NFL 
In July uh, 2007, Vic and three men were indicted on federal felony charges of operating an unlawful interstate dogfighting venture known as Bad News Kennels. Vic was, Vic was accused of financing the operations, directly participating in the dogfights and executions, and personally handling thousands of dollars in related gambling activities. For the focus of my conversation, I'm not going to focus on the gambling activities. However, um, a lot of witnesses testified that Vic, and I believe he admitted, that um, he personally handled some of the executions of some of the dogs, which included hanging, drowning, electrocuting, and torturing a lot of these animals. Um, 47 dogs were found on the property, and I believe almost all of them have been uh, rescued, and a lot of them are in homes now. Um, I have a no connection with Michael Vick and his accomplishments because, again, I'm not a huge NFL fan. However, um, I was a vegan for 15 years, and I have a rescue dog, and I had another rescue dog, both of which were the victims of abuse by individuals. So personally, I think that this is a um, horrible, obviously, crime and deed, and I know that there's a lot of arguments out there that Vic has had charities and tried to redeem himself. Um, however, it's difficult for me to understand how someone could do that for so many years to so many um, helpless animals who are extremely intelligent. I believe almost all of them were pit bulls. And then just redeem themselves in an honest way and not for a for PR purposes. However, again, going back to my comment on Ray Rice, Vic also is another individual that came from, you know, a troubled childhood. So we have to think about that. Like at what point during his childhood was he exposed to things where he felt like this was an okay thing to do? Um, football, obviously he made millions of dollars on football and continues to make money off of that. Um, maybe that was his only way out of his situation. And so there's a lot of sides to the coin. However, just personally, this is something that spoke to me because I am a rescue dog owner and I um, don't believe really in torturing any animals. First and foremost, you know, Radhika, you, you outlined it beautifully, right? Sure. There are things that are simply unforgivable. Um, Haley, you touched on it a little bit. They could say anything, they could deem themselves, and it just wouldn't matter to that individual. Beating a woman in any context, simply that's simply an unforgivable act. Punching someone who's helpless in any context, man, woman, any type of person, is an unforgivable act. Um, but to do it you know, in the fashion that Ray Rice does it. And if you haven't seen the video, I'm not sure I would suggest you watch it. It's pretty, it's pretty hard to watch. Um, but that's a, that's an unforgivable act. But then that sort of segues into this redemption conversation. So Ray Rice, uh, I'm sorry, both Ray Rice and Michael Vick, these things happen at what would be considered the peaks of their careers. Um, and the response is, is pretty, it's a pretty stark dichotomy between how the two handle the situation um, Ray Rice gets a four-game suspension from the NFL, um, comes back, and you know teams aren't willing to sign him because of the negative PR, and that's definitely important, and it's good to acknowledge that the owners of the teams did that. But the NFL gives this man who is on film beating his wife a four-game suspension. Compare that to somebody who gets caught smoking marijuana and gets a full-season suspension. So I think that's an important thing to acknowledge. Um, but you talked about the financial component, and I think it's worth acknowledging that while Michael Vick has certainly made a, a very, very strong comeback in terms of 
um, his earning capabilities and the fact that he still had a career after this whole incident happens. Um, I think it's also important to acknowledge that on the other side of that, um, when he goes to jail in 2007, he's at the pinnacle of his career. Um, his team was on the verge of competing for a championship, um, which, you know, for anyone who cares about a professional sport, that's everything in your career. Um, and on top of that, he went to prison and he did serve his time. Yeah, I think Haley brings up, and Jake, they both bring up a really good point that it's almost a personal decision. We can't decide for society what society should care about. We can't cancel someone because of a personal reason and then expect the rest of the country or world to go along with it. So something like dogfighting, egregious, unforgivable. Matt and Haley have both expressed that there's absolutely nothing that Michael Vick could probably do at this point. I don't want to put words in your mouth. No, not at all. There, there isn't anything. I know I speak for me and, and my wife where like there's just no coming back from that. But I think you guys correctly point out that it is an individual reaction to it. So for some, there is some act of redemption that can bring this person back. Uh, and for others, there's not. And that's why I feel like the individualism turns these public figures into economic units. So Haley, you talked about how Ray Rice had trouble getting signed despite this, you know, only four game suspension because of what he did. If, you know, and Rodiger, you said how uh, an individual can't make the choice for society. But if a sufficient number of people were to say that's unforgivable, now for, you know, your team owners, now it becomes an economic decision. And now they can say, regardless of whether, you know, whatever our view I'd be it in my individual as team owner or our board teams, you know, uh, how we view your acts, you're hurting us. You are costing us money. And so we're going to let you go. And so the other side of that coin is somebody like Colin Kaepernick, who even like me, someone who doesn't know anything about sports, does know about that. There are plenty of people in this country who support what he is doing, yet he is costing the teams money. And so nobody will sign him. And so that's why it makes me wonder whether economics is actually the true moral uh, barometer as to whether or not someone has done something bad. If we choose to exert economic punishment on people, that is the only way that we can kind of objectively measure whether or not something was sufficiently bad. I don't want to go too deep down this rabbit hole, but Radhika, you touched on earlier that um, when talking about forgiveness, there is a religious component for some people. And I'm not going to try to claim to speak for all Christians, both because trying to claim to speak for all members of a group is always a bad idea. Mm -hmm. And also in particular, because there's a lot of people who claim to speak for all Christians who I would not be caught dead in the same state (laughs) as. But I'll just say this. I think that that's a very well-made point, and I kind of agree with it, that it's something that when we're talking about this difference between an individual willingness to forgive and a societal willingness to forgive, I think that elements like that, uh, cultural ideas, whether they come from religion or from somewhere else, of what your duty is in terms of how much forgiveness or grace you should owe someone, mm-hmm has an impact because that is something that goes beyond what you expect of yourself and goes into what you expect from a society, whether or not there is a line that is everyone can, you know, no one can cross this line without being condemned forever versus something that can be brought back from. And I will also throw in too that there are some people I think 
I'm not going to claim whether or not I agree with this, but I know some people kind of take a tact of it's God's job to forgive people. It's not necessarily mm -hmm. mine. Um, and that can come in other ways too, even if you're not religious, the idea of society can do what they want, but I'm going to hold my view. I think that there's a lot of range for what an individual belief on forgiveness is, how your specific cultural uh, beliefs impact that, and then how much of that culture is part of broader societal understanding of whether or not an action is unforgivable or not, or whether a specific figure has the capacity to be redeemed. Well, we are at a Catholic law school, so I'll keep the, the Christian thing going ever so briefly. You know, the forgiveness can kind of come in gradients, essentially. You know, we could say to, let's say, Michael Vick, we forgive you, but you can't go back to playing football. You can't go back to making millions of dollars. You know, you've, you've served your time. You're out of prison. But, you know, our forgiveness stops at giving you back all of what you had before that. And so, you know... Um, what did Jesus say? Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's. So if you say that the individual may be able to forgive Michael Vick and, and, you know, if he's a religious figure, his maker might be able to forgive him. But we as a society will say, no, we are demanding a little bit more than just simply you, uh, you know, go to prison. It's also you don't then get to return to making millions of dollars essentially for doing something that, you know, little leaguers do for free. But, um I don't want to cut us off, but I think this provides an important segue in, in this economic ramifications conversation. Um, one of the people that I researched was Roseanne Barr. Um, and so a couple of years ago, Roseanne Barr puts out this tweet about Valerie Jarrett, who uh, was a personal advisor to Barack Obama during his presidency, and combines the Planet of the Apes movie with the Muslim Brotherhood and says, <coughs> excuse me, if you added those two things together, what you'd be left is with Valerie Jarrett and this whole conversation about the economic ramifications of one's actions really presented themselves outside of the context of sports with Roseanne Barr. Pretty instantaneously with her also, which yeah, was absolutely, I, I think a symptom of the time also. Of course, a hundred percent. But within hours of this tweet going out, ABC cancels Roseanne. They were in the yeah. middle of their, I think it was their 10th season and they, they were, um, ABC's most highly viewed show. No, they they had just rebooted it. Like Rosé right. was back in like the early '90s, and then they rebooted it, and they put a a lot of investment into bringing it back and hyping it up. And With then... a slightly skinnier John Goodman. I mean, it was a it was a <laughs> huge huge thing um, to get Roseanne back on air, it, and it was ABC's most viewed show when it came back. And that's not. Um, I understand that you know TV is changing and everything, but that's not nothing to. That's not something to ignore. Um, and so, you know, this conversation that we're having with Michael Vick and should he be allowed to come back and make millions of dollars? Well, I think um, the way that the, the Roseanne Barr situation manifested was as soon as she as soon as Roseanne got canceled, Roseanne provided the opportunity for everybody else, everyone that was in the cast of this show to create a, a spinoff of the show without her. And she also further agreed that she wouldn't take any. Um, economic benefits from the show so it was all about the it's the same universe same family same characters same everything just with no Roseanne and um, she openly elects not to take any of the economic benefits of that and her actions are are egregious she's a blatant racist and everything that she has said outside of the context of her castmates has been 
pretty questionable. I mean, you know, sh- there's articles on the Washington Post about how, you know, sh- since this tweet went out, she hasn't stopped talking about it. And the things that she said are pretty terrible in response to it. But I, I think it's interesting how she's provided this opportunity for everyone around her, which Michael Vick and Ray Rice could have done. They could have walked away and said, look, I'm, I'm done with football. I've made a mistake. And now it's my time to, to slip away. Um, but they didn't. They continued to pursue these millions of dollars versus Roseanne has, at least in terms of this TV show, tried to, to be quiet and allow the opportunity for everybody else that she was involved with to continue. Yeah. And that's one last thing I wanted to say about these two individuals. Um, Ray Rice, to me, is is has done just as much wrong um, as Michael Vick. I'm not saying that Michael Vick is a is a worse person necessarily. However, and I personally I I believe in forgiveness and Ray Rice's fiance obviously forgave him because then she married him Um, and people have forgiven Michael Vick and I believe in forgiveness but I think what I uh, part of me what that the part the difficult situation for me is what Matt was talking about and what Jake has talked about as well is that they after these um, after their behavior became public they decided, including uh, Ray Rice, who said that if he was signed, he vowed to donate all of his season salaries to domestic violence charities. They then made these pushes um, to get involved in charities and still pursued getting money from the industry that they were involved in. So I think that's different than Roseanne, and that's the part that still bothers me. Um, I think that's why a lot of people have signed this petition for Michael Vick. It's not like you can't do past behaviors and not be forgiven it's rather you're the nfl is still allowing you to participate in something that is Mm -hmm. has given you millions of dollars completely valid i think even if you agree with jake and i that the man went to prison for 19 months um so technically for the crime that he committed we can argue all day long whether that's an adequate punishment for someone who committed the crimes that he did i think just recently um they increased the the punishment it, they made um animal torture a federal crime and increased the punishment for that i think that just happened last week so I, I think we all agree that that's a good thing but you bring up an amazing point that okay fine you did your time and sure we forgive you in society but that does not mean you deserve to be famous and lifted up i think that's a different conversation i think that's a good point that you bring up but i think the the flip side of that coin is if Michael Vick goes to jail, and, and again, I understand that Michael Vick is not the best example of this necessarily, but if Michael Vick goes to jail, he serves his time, and now, by the definition of the law, comes out as, you know, he's got a, not a clean slate, he's still got a felony on his record, but he comes out and he's a, a citizen again. Why should he not be afforded the opportunity to pursue something in this capitalistic society in which yeah, we live? Yeah to make as much money as he can. And if he happens to be incredibly good at something, um, you know, who are we, and I don't mean the five of us necessarily, but who are we as society to say, even though you've done everything we've asked you to do in, in terms of the repercussions of your actions, that doesn't matter. You're still not allowed to, to continue to pursue a, a life for yourself. Right. And I think that comes back to the, the point that I was making about, you know, do we see as, as dramatically what you just said? Do we see 19 months as sufficient amount of time to spend in prison for this act? And then there, you know, do you cross over from just simply your time in prison to the court of public opinion 
and then whether or not the court of public opinion wants to then exert further economic pressure on you such that no team will ever sign you because of what you did. And that's, you know, I don't remember all the facts, but if I'm not mistaken, um, Mike Tyson beat up, beat up somebody. His wife. His wife. He did a cameo appearance in The Hangover and no, the call and the champ were there. I can't imagine anybody would have allowed him to be in that movie. You know, Michael Vick is not the only American to run a, a dogfighting ring. And Roseanne Barr is most certainly not the only person to have tweeted something highly questionable and extremely racist. And yet, these are the people that we're talking about because of the economic ramifications of their actions. And I think that's the underlying linchpin to all of these conversations. What I struggle with the most, and I'm glad Haley brought up both Ray Rice and Michael Vick as a pair, um, because I don't want to, I'm not going to talk about them specifically anymore, but just from that example. So we had one person who abused a woman and one person who abused dogs. I think we can all agree that Michael Vick ended up paying a lot more as far as consequences are concerned, and people continue to bring up Michael Vick regularly in the context of animal abuse. Ray Rice got away fairly cleanly with this, and so my biggest gripe with society has always been since the day I was born is that women are inherently undervalued in our society. They are. I mean, I... I know I'm at a table with three men and there's two women here, but I think we can all agree women are undervalued by our society. And the fact that we continue to give economic relief to people who have treated women horribly is a pervasive issue. And so this this person that I'm going to bring up next is an intersection of a lot of different topics we've brought up about a personal connection, about the idea of redemption, about the treatment of women. Um, it's Tiger Woods, and I really wanted to talk about Tiger Woods today because my family is very into golf. Um, both my husband's family and my extended family, everyone is obsessed with golf. We have a bunch of golfers. I know it's not the most exciting, exciting sport for most people, but I have a very golf-heavy family. And my father and brother worship Tiger Woods still to this day. My cousin who has three daughters posted a video recently of his two-year-old daughter holding her little plastic putter and he's in the background saying yell go Tiger and her little baby voice is yelling go Tiger go Tiger and that hurts my heart and soul. It kills me to my core that all of the men in my family are so vociferously passionate about supporting Tiger Woods. Let me just give a little refresher about what he's done. So Tiger Woods is um, not the first, but one of the first and the most successful African-American golfer in world history. He um, had a spate of Masters wins and tournament wins, um, lots of first and second place finishes, championship victories. He represented the United States of America in golf. So he has quite a bit of golf-related accomplishments. But he's always had a tendency to be an ass to his caddy. His caddy did a tell-all piece about how awful Tiger was to him. Uh, There are many instances of Tiger yelling at photographers on the golf course. He was always rude during um, post-game 
press conferences, sorry, I lost the word. Um, he was always incredibly rude to reporters during press conferences. So he was never like this um, charismatic star. He was always just kind of a butthead. Um, and then we find out, kind of during the height of his, uh, the peak of his career, like you were talking about Michael Vick and Ray Rice, we find out he wrecked his car in his driveway, possibly under the influence. More of the story comes out that the window of the car was smashed, um, and the rumor around that was that his wife smashed his window open with a golf club in an effort to stop his car from going anywhere. So then people started digging into this. They were like, this is weird. Tiger Woods has been famous for so long, and he's been married to his wife for 10-plus years. What is going on? Turns out he was a sex addict, endless amounts of porn, endless amounts of sex on his phone with endless amounts of women. I mean, it, it was outrageous how many there were. It became a joke in our society. Um, eventually, he got another DUI. Um, and so he had a period of, um, I would say, less success because he was recovering from his surgeries. He had a couple of back surgeries, a couple of knee surgeries. He came back after all of that. For the, for the whole decade of 2010 to 2019, he had his ups and downs. Just came back this year, a few weeks ago, and won in Augusta. He won the Masters. And there's video of him walking off the 18th green winning, and it looks, it's like a biblical photo. He's parting the sea of people who are all praising him and going wild. Right. And, and I sat there in my own home, and my blood was boiling. And I think my brother and dad maybe when I'm around cheer for Tiger even harder because they know how mad it makes me. It's become a thing in our house, seriously. It, and every time Tiger Woods is on TV, which is all the time because th that's all they watch is golf, it becomes a point of contention in our household. So then I had to sit there and really question, why do you hate Tiger Woods so much? What is it about Tiger Woods that you hate so much? He treated women horribly. And he just carried on recklessly because he was the first $100 million endorsement from Nike and all of these huge numbers and um, important figures about how winning he was and how wealthy he was. God only knows what happened to all of those women who were published in all these magazines about having an affair with Tiger Woods. People love to say, love to support a quote-unquote underdog story, and Tiger was hurt for so long, and it's so amazing that he came back. So what, what I'm hearing then is that to our society, being healthy and winning is more important than how women are treated by that person. So the fact that Tiger's knees are doing okay is more important than the fact that he destroyed lots of women's lives, including his wife and his daughter. I wanted to bring this up when I was talking about um, Ray Rice and Michael Vick, who are obviously famous football players, but not as famous, I would say, in a sports world as Tiger Woods. Um, to beg the question as if um, Tom Brady was accused of torturing dogs or punching Giselle in the face and knocking her out, um, what would our reaction be? Because I think, I think it has a little bit to do with his comeback, but I, me personally, I think it has to do with how famous he is and how much money he makes, not only for himself, but the brands and the sport that he plays for. And so that was something I wanted to bring up because everyone knows Tom Brady, LeBron James, Michael Jordan, those are all very famous um, regardless of your preferences on teams or sports, everyone knows who those people are. 
if they torture dogs and they punch their wives, what would our reaction be? Well, I think the other, Haley, first and foremost, you're 100% correct. Like the, the stature of Tiger Woods is what makes this such a hot button conversation. I think the other thing too, and it's important to acknowledge that Michael Vick and Ray Rice, their acts are inherently violent and their acts were, you know, they, they physically harmed somebody else. And while there's no excuse for infidelity and, and this sex addiction thing was, um, you know, the, the big meme of the sports world for like five years, basically, because Tiger Woods was gone and, um, you know, it was such a fall from grace that this young man who took over a sport where, candidly, people that don't look like him yeah. don't perform. Um, and, and it was just such an intense fall from grace. But when you talk about the difference in the acts, and I think, um, you know, we'll touch on this a little bit more as we move forward, but um, these acts exist on a spectrum, right? So infidelity in a marriage, while inexcusable, while, uh, it, it does not rise to that moral outrage for the average person of the visceral reaction we get of seeing somebody punch their fiance in the face or the visceral reaction we get of reading about all these terrible things that happen to dogs and i think it, you know that sort of provides a different context because radica you're exactly right golf fans now that that tiger quote unquote tiger's back and now that there's been a little time for us to heal from this um people laugh at this situation they say oh ha ha you know tiger was addicted to pain pills and had a sex addiction it's like people laugh about it and the reality is you're exactly right it it provides a context wherein we are openly acknowledging if you perform well and you are a fun loving guy on the golf course that's more important than whatever you do in your private life so i almost agree with you that the act is what determines whether society is willing to welcome you back or not. And I also agree that what Tiger did was not violence against women. But then explain to me Chris Brown. Chris Brown has been around forever. I mean, I would say the last, what, 15 years at least, he has been a part of the pop culture vernacular that we're all familiar with. We went to college. I think we all went to college during Chris Brown's peak, where whenever we went out, we were going to hear Chris Brown. And in 2019, that's still the case. You cannot go to a club without hearing a Chris Brown feature or a Chris Brown track. And what Chris Brown did was actually far more violent than I think most people realize. So he attempted to force her out of the vehicle, shoved her head against the window, screamed that he was going to kill her as he continued to punch her, bit her left ear, choked her till she almost went unconscious. He beat the shit out of her. He had a bar fight, many brawls versus Drake's crew. He dressed as an Islamic terrorist for Halloween soon after that. And on the accomplishments end, what has he done besides put out some good boppy club music? Mediocre. I will say mediocre club well, music. Okay. Yeah. I was going to quote one of my favorite uh, YouTube music critics, uh, Todd in the Shadows, to say that uh, as a singer, Chris Brown is a very good dancer. Yeah. I mean, so like why does society still celebrate this person? Not just celebrate, but also it was uh what like 
early like early spring 2018 when Chris Brown recorded a track with Little Dicky that was uh, Freaky Friday, which the the pitch for the song was that Lil Dicky uh, had switched bodies with Chris Brown and how great it was to be Chris Brown and all the awesome things about him. And in the song with Chris Brown and Lil Dicky's body, there's a line. Ain't nobody judging cause I'm black or my controversial past. I'ma go and see a movie and relax. Hey, I'm a but the fact that anyone thought that that was a good idea still just mystifies me. I don't care for Chris Brown's music necessarily because this is still a Grammy award-winning artist. He's had singles on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100. I mean, you know, we may not care for his music, um, but we are not everybody, and his music is celebrated. So, um, like, I, I am with everything you're saying, and as somebody who thinks Lil Dicky is a funny, you know, YouTube personality, was disappointed to see Chris Brown in this crossover, whatever. Um, but I do think it's important to put on the record that Chris Brown is a, is a decorated and celebrated artist um you know that does not subtract from the egregiousness of what he's done but it is important to acknowledge that he is still an incredibly lucratively successful musician well lucrative i think is the operative word in that sentence as long as he's making money whoever his record signer or his um whoever his label is is unlikely to drop him uh as we were talking about wagner earlier i think chris brown again not in terms of his contributions to, <laughs> to music and music theory, um, but Chris Brown does have a lot of those songs where, you know, when you say Chris Brown, you don't think of his music. Um, but if you heard some of the songs as far back as like 2006, 2007, you'd say, oh, wow, I forgot that's Chris Brown. Like, I remember that song from when I was in high school and it was on the radio every single day, that kind of stuff. Um, I, this, this one, I think, of everybody that we have discussed and will discuss is the hardest to explain the list of activities you know like radica like you mentioned they are simultaneously a list of things that make our skin crawl and then things that are just like you're embarrassing yourself in public and you're being recorded arguing with you know regular people over ten dollars and you have a hundred million in your pocket like th those kinds of things there's the full it runs the gamut but chris brown does not have the stature that a michael jackson does or um, you know, like any of these other artists, R. Kelly, like he just is blown under the radar um, until we've started having these bigger committee. Well, I think that might be it, the under the radar part. So the Shiger the Woods thing, I feel like it's not just a spectrum that we're talking about. It's, um, it's along two axes, one of them being how much of a contribution and then the other axis being the severity of the transgression. So if you made a huge contribution, you know, you cured cancer and all you did was be, you know, rude to waitstaff, then you were known for that. Like, I don't think people would care if you were rude to waitstaff and abused dogs. Well, now we're starting to get to it. And you shot someone in the middle of Fifth Avenue. <laughs> that would potentially be, well, now we're starting to cancel each other out and then thereby this person is canceled. So I, you know, like Martin Luther King was also a serial philanderer, but obviously his contributions are significant so yeah or you know bill clinton in that same vein right bill clinton did a lot of good things you know objectively good things even um my parents who were probably not his biggest fans will agree that his involvement in settling the troubles as they were known in northern ireland and ireland was a good thing that came out of that so there's i think we have to look at them on an axis as to how big of the contribution was there and how big of a trend and how much of a transgression but I think 
it's a lot harder to measure the transgression than it is the contribution. It's easy for us to kind of all collectively agree, sure, curing cancer is good, or even being a role model for African-American youth who would consider a career in golf is a good thing. But it's a lot harder to look at the transgression. Like, I could hear the story about Ray Rice and think, and if I were to watch a video and, and see him be what I perceived to be sincerely apologetic, I'm like, okay, you, you got carried away and you pay, you know, you, you've, you've been redeemed in some kind of way, you've paid your uh, penance, you know, you can return to playing football. Whereas for me, abusing dogs is just a non-starter. There's no coming back. And so I think it's evaluating the severity of the transgression is the really hard part. So are you, Matt, then, for you, it's a, it's a mathematical equation almost. Like you have two Maybe. sides of this where, you know, okay, on one side of this scale, we're going to measure your contributions to society or, or to your craft or what have you. And on the other side of the scale is the magnitude and weight of your action. And so long as your contributions are, are, you know, tipping the scales in favor of the good you've contributed, it more than the bad is dragging you down, then the bad becomes irrelevant. So at least that's how I perceive what you're saying. Yeah, to, potentially, to an extent. But then again, you get back to the individualist side of the severity of the transgression. And so you could say that... Um, Roman Polanski, some people will say that Rosemary's Baby was just like an eye-opening film and its, a bi- its contribution to the evolution of cinema is just so great where a rape charge is just, eh, it just doesn't, it just, it's not sufficient. Whereas someone, I think particularly in 2019. A rape charge against a 13-year-old child. Right. For a lot of people, I think particularly in 2019, a rape charge against a 13-year-old is that's that is sufficient we don't really care how good rosemary's baby is right like that's the line is drawn in the sand there's nothing that you could have contributed based on that allegation and i think for me too and this can become a slippery slope because i think people tend to do this where they make excuses but i think looking at people's foundation is important too so in the men's journal article about the ray rice exile they discuss how football players might have a shorter fuse than the rest of us. If your whole life you're trained to be aggressive, other things tend to come with that, says Jonathan Fader, a leading sports psychologist who works with professional athletes. Their job is to be aggressive. So going back to Ray Rice and Michael Vick, you know, they are trained to be aggressive. I mean, football is an aggressive sport, whereas Chris Brown, like, were, are you the, were you a victim of abuse? I don't know these answers to these questions, but those things are, are something that we should at least consider. I am not in any way excusing Ray Rice or Michael Vick's behavior, but I'm just saying there, you have to consider that because there is a difference between them and Chris Brown in that way. I don't know Chris Brown's background. Again, maybe he was um, a victim of abuse in his past, but that is something that I try to consider too. And I think Michael Jackson, we haven't really got into him as much but you have to think about him and his childhood a little bit and people have yeah so Haley you're right we haven't talked about Michael Jackson I have deliberately avoided it because I think for a lot of these people as it comes up in my day-to-day life I see a news article or a tweet or whatever I form I do a quick analysis in my mind not purposefully but I think we all do this and kind of loosely decide where we stand on the issue and carry on with our lives. Michael Jackson is one that I have not been able to do so quickly or easily. 
um, on the one hand, the man abused children, and for me, that that is my line that I don't think that you can come back from. I think it's unforgivable. I think that anyone who created this entire system invested millions of dollars into a network where you could sexually abuse children is a sick individual that deserves to be ostracized, ostracized by society. At the same time, I can say that our world would not be the same if Michael Jackson didn't exist in it. I, especially for myself, like to have a clear stance on where I am on a controversial topic. I like to have my three or four points that I can say and then move on with life. I haven't been able to delineate those clearly with Michael Jackson. So that's why I have personally avoided the topic. But I think it's probably Michael Jackson or Kelly are ones that we need to talk about the most because they are the most pervasive, I feel. You know, before we continue, um, there's a an interview that Michael Hampton, who is the surviving R. Kelly documentary director, um, he did an interview with NPR, and he touched on this. He said, um, with music in particular, unlike other art forms, we connect it not necessarily to just the artist, but also to moments in our life. So for, you know, um, I Believe I Can Fly, that's obviously being everywhere in our music. And so Hampton continues, I get that ability to say that he's innocent. So that if you're going to be a supporter of him and you're going to listen to theory, that's beautiful, right? Like, okay, we can separate the man from the music. But I think what distinguishes Michael Jackson and R. Kelly from those other examples that you've provided is nobody, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, maybe the Jackson 5 you do, but nobody's turning on Thriller or Bad and saying like, wow, I love the backup vocals here or wow, that rhythm guitar really gets me. You know, you're listening because it's Michael Jackson. And I don't know. I do listen to Beat It sometimes for that Eddie Van Halen guitar solo, but your point is taken. <laughs> you're, uh, you're certainly the exception to the rule. <laughs> um, and R. Kelly, too. You know, you're not, you're not listening to R. Kelly saying, like, wow, what a beautiful harmony. Um, no, it's those slick vocals, right. and I hate myself for even just saying it. <laughs> but, you know, I think, I think another thing, your too. Your mind's telling you no. Your ears <laughs> are telling you yes. <laughs> I, I think the other thing that's important to acknowledge here is, um, you know, with Ray Rice, it's a, it's a, as far as we know, a one-time incident. Um, you know, with Michael Vick, it's a, it's a small cluster of incidents that get grouped together, and it's a shorter time frame. Um, but with Michael Jackson and with R. Kelly, we're talking about decades of people knowing that there were issues and actively choosing to ignore it. So R. Kelly, in 1994, he's 28 years old. He marries a 15-year-old. Um, Michael Jackson, there were there were reports constantly over and over throughout his career, and people said, well, he's Michael Jackson. It's probably not true. Um, and I think that, again, sort of provides a, a distinguishing factor where... And I think the problem with both of those individuals is that they both ended up going to court at some point, and the court exonerated them. That's another problem, and that's a whole different rabbit hole about how broken our justice system was. But the focus of both of their cases was so narrow that they ended up escaping justice in those incidences, and then that gave the supporters that much more ammo to bolster their position that, oh, you know, the court of law exonerated him, so who are you to still hold it over him. He's innocent. He's innocent. I mean, that is also very problematic, in my opinion. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think not to get into a conversation about jurisprudence, but <laughs> the innocent until proven guilty standard exists for a reason. However, a court has not said you are innocent. Um, and I think those did to the music. And, you know, I'm one of those people, too. Like, I still struggle with this acknowledge 
someone's transgressions while also acknowledging their, I mean, it's, it's impossible to do, right? I mean, if anybody had the answer to this, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be sitting at this table. I do think there's a, a necessary ingredient, though, and I think as law students, we appreciate it perhaps more than anybody. We all know from reading cases where you change one little fact and the case goes in a totally different direction. And so I think awareness of the facts is critical because, like, I didn't know if someone told me Ray Rice beats women, I, you know, take what they say at face value. Well, in fact, that's, that's actually not true. He, he hit one person, and as far as I know, that that was it. And so that that is a twisting of the facts to suit an end. So I think it's incumbent upon anybody who's going to make a decision about how they're going to interact with a public figure uh, in the wake of a, you know, a learned of transgression, that you make sure that you find out all the information, that you don't just, you know, oh, you know, my friend Radica told me this and well, now I'm not going to listen to that music or, or support that political figure anymore. It's incumbent upon us to learn all the facts before making any decision. But, uh, you know, Radhika mentioned earlier the allegations against Donald Trump and, and learning all the facts. How many younger people today who don't know all of the facts about what Bill Clinton did 20 years ago and just think he's an ex-president, he's in the party that I support, he probably did. So. I mean, I've heard of like some bad stuff, but well, actually he did a lot of bad things. And I think if Bill Clinton were to run in 2019 for the 2020 election, there he wouldn't stand a snowball's chance in hell. Like, there's just no way someone with that background would ever come and to yet, life. And yet Donald Trump is our president. Like, you know, I, to, I will always come back to To that. an extent, well, who – we can cut this out. But I think it comes down to who you're representing. If you're trying to get the Democratic nomination in 2019, yeah, you ain't got – It's yeah. the no standards of your party, of your peers. And mm-hmm. it's like right. people in our generation mm-hmm. and people of that – political party have much higher standards mm-hmm. i think yes yeah. the democrats yeah. they have much different standards yeah. yeah i would not i would not say they have higher, higher standards. standards i would say yeah. they have different standards so you know matt you bring up a great point about the modernization of these conversations um and you know all these figures that we've touched on twitter and you know i use twitter because that's my media of choice but Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and the internet and the accessibility of having it in our pockets 24 hours a day has completely changed the framework of these conversations. And R. Kelly has a marriage certificate to Aaliyah, the woman that he married. She's 15. He's 28. She's She's 15. She's a child. I mean, she is a sophomore in high school age. In 2019, if that marriage license comes on Twitter and Aaliyah's high school classmates are like, hey, she's not 18, she's 15. There's there's no chance that R. Kelly becomes what right. he is today. Or Michael Jackson, you know, if if somebody from TMZ followed him back to the Neverland Ranch and saw a little boy walking out of his house with no clothes on or something like that, that would certainly, you know, have changed that balancing act that we were touching on earlier. And I think the the pendulum has swung, right? So we used to be far more forgiving and we used to be able to turn a blind eye Uh, much more easily than we do now. And now in 2019, the pendulum has swung all the way to the other side where we really struggle to let anything off the hook. Like yesterday, I read an article about how Justin Timberlake was holding hands on the set of his movie with a co-star and had to issue a public apology to his wife. That's a a conversation. You can't ignore it anymore. And even if Justin Timberlake's your favorite artist, you you can't just dismiss these conversations anymore. The fact that 
Justin Timberlake is somebody that everybody recognizes, and Jessica Biel is somebody that every not everybody recognizes, but is a well-known celebrity. We've now created, we as society have created this situation where if Justin Timberlake said nothing or said something to the effect of like, look, that's not your business, he could be canceled. And maybe that wouldn't be without merit, but it, it certainly is a different situation that would than what would have existed 15, 25, so on and so forth years ago. The final question that I wanted to go through is, and we've talked about this, but I want to come at it head on, is is anyone who consumes the products of these tainted figures, whether it's R. Kelly's music or Harvey Weinstein's movies, you know, with the knowledge of what they did, then complicit in enabling those people? And then furthermore, is the consumption also greenlighting future offenders? And so if you say you're allowed to continue making money, someone else might say, oh, if I'm going to keep making money at it, even if I become persona non grata, if I'm still going to make money at it, eh, I'll keep, you know, I might do this thing. And so Louis C.K. is a good example. I know, I forget who, but I know one tainted public figure was taken off of Spotify, at least temporarily, if not permanently. Was it R. Kelly? I think it was R. Kelly. I know he's still there, so it might, he might have been put back on. And I know Louis C.K. was never taken off. I know Spotify issued a statement saying we are letting listeners make the choice as to whether or not they want to continue to listen to his comedy albums through Spotify. But then the question becomes, are you, by listening to his albums and putting whatever amount of money he gets per you know, listen through the platform, are you then enabling him? And are you enabling any future comic who thinks, well, now that I've reached this point of success, I can do anything I want because I'll still be able to make money? And so, you know, just a quick bit of background on Louis C.K. He and these are he wrote a, a public apology that was published in the New York Times where he admitted to masturbating while being on the phone with one woman. He asked another woman if he could masturbate in front of her and two up-and-coming female comics at some kind of um, media event in Colorado. They were with Louis C.K. He invited them up to his hotel room under uh, you know, non-sexual circumstances and worshiping him. They said, sure, because he's the top of the comedy food chain. And he immediately then took his pants, once in his room, he took his pants off and started masturbating in front of them. But it, he also won gobs of awards for his show. He was considered to be someone who's shown a fairly bright light on um, the hypocrisy of public figures of comedy, of male comedy in particular, uh, and was seen for a nu- fr- from a number of women's perspective as a bit of a feminist for the way that he helped up-and-coming female comics and also the way that he discussed male comedy. So are we guilty of enabling Louis C.K. and of any potential future bad actors when we listen to his albums or R. Kelly's or Michael Jackson's or anybody else. Well, I was going to bring that up when Jake was talking about the director of the R. Kelly um, documentary about how you can separate the artist from the art. And I think that's hard because of the monetary value that's that's attached to their work. I'm not saying I have an answer to that or I'm not going to talk about what I personally think on that, but... I do think that if the artist is still alive and even if they're dead because the money goes to their estate, um, it's really hard to separate the artist from the art because if you're participating in their art and 
and going to shows or listening to their music, they are them or their estate and their family are getting money from that. So I think it is something that people struggle with because going to Louis C.K.'s shows or listening to Michael Jackson songs in a way, I think you're, you're kind of forgiving it, whether you want to admit that to yourself or not. Yeah, I think to Matt's original question about enabling, it absolutely, without question, is enabling. Um, Amanda Hess of the New York Times said that the critical acclaim and economic clout afforded their projects have worked to insulate them from the consequences of their behavior. I would take that a step further and say the insulation of the consequences allows them to create more work product that they then benefit from more financially, which insulates them further from consequences. And it becomes this incredibly toxic cycle, especially when you're talking about, I mean, I think everyone that we've talked about, whether they're musicians or athletes, as long as they're making money, that prevents them from being overly criticized. And the fact that they're not being overly criticized allows them to make more money. And we've had a wide-ranging conversation regarding spirituality and religion and forgiveness, but I think the sad reality is it will always come back to the dollar amount in our society. I'm going to offer this very briefly um, because I'm not necessarily taking a definitive stance, but I would say that there is a marked difference first between living and dead artists, because I do think there's a difference between money going towards someone's estate versus going money going towards someone who is actively creating or actively acting in the world, not even just artists, but um, actively p- continuing to participate in society. And there's also definitely a marked difference between people like Louis C.K. who have chosen to dig themselves in and people who have at least made some sort of attempt at redemption and whether or not you believe that attempt at redemption is sufficient or if it's a non-apology apology or whatever it is. But I think people, there's a difference between supporting someone who digs in and the types of people who want to support someone who digs in and the type of people who want to look for a way to forgive someone and whether or not you as an individual think that what they've done is enough, it's enough for them to say, this is okay, they've tried to redeem themselves, so I feel more comfortable continuing to support them. Line is obviously going to be different for every individual artist, but that's certainly an important distinction. I think there's another distinction too, the art itself, the medium of the art. So if you were to look at a painting, it's so... It's, it's a static image. It's, it, it's so easy to bifurcate from the artist because it's just this thing that hangs on a wall. If I'm, especially if it's live, if I'm w- looking at Louis C.K. standing on stage and he's just talking like that, it's impossible to disassociate the words that are coming into my ear from the mouth that they're coming out. There's, there's just no way that that can be done. And I think the, the point that you made about the sincerity of the or the evaluation of the apology in his uh, apology that he published in the New York Times he referred to himself or his penis as his dick and he said I know it's wrong to take my dick out in front of people it felt like he was still trying to make jokes like there, there was just something not sincere at least to me about that well but okay so two things first you touched on there's words associated and the language is conveying a message and I think that sort of Um, emphasizes the point I made earlier on Michael Jackson and R. Kelly literally saying that what they were doing is happening in real life. The use of comedy in the apology, I think, sort of touches on what Haley touched on earlier, which was 
you know, he's in this comedy mindset because that's what he does and that's what he's good at. And Ray Rice and Michael Vick are wired to be violent people because football is a violent game. You know, do we really expect these these celebrities, whether, you know, regardless of what they're famous for, to have an on off switch for their craft? So do we expect football players to be able to turn on their aggression and their um, you know, their intensity when they walk onto the football field and as soon as they walk off, turn it off? And do we expect... Yes, we do expect that of people because we are sentient human beings and we should be able to comport ourselves in society. So yes, my answer to your question is yes, so we do expect that of people. Fundamentally, I agree with you. And I think um, that is certainly the goal we all strive for, right? Like, I don't want to go to court one day and then come home to my fiance and like, prosecute her for something that's exactly what i was thinking i think it's easy to hold someone to the standard of you you know you spent your day on the gridiron tackling people and then like no hugging doesn't mean tackling when you come it's that's an easy standard to hold to but i think you know your husband 20 years from now like say like i am so tired of you coming home a prosecutor Mm -hmm. every day Mm -hmm. like my mom was a kindergarten teacher and after doing that for 30 years like that's a hard switch to turn off like there were times where i felt really frustrated as a teenager like you're talking to me like I'm six and I'm not six. Mm-hmm. So like th- that can be tough. Right. And, and again, I think this is all sort of relating back to the pedestal we put these people on and we expect things of them that we sure expect of ourselves, but don't hold ourselves to that same standard. And, you know, fortunately I've never beat anyone. I've never run a congratulations. Jay. Thank you. Thank you. A uh, very low bar to meet. Um, but you know, I've never done these things. And I think the other thing that you touched on, Matt, is, you know, these things have happened, though, and nobody has the ability to rewind time and nobody has the ability to go back and say to their younger self, like, hey, you're about to make the biggest mistake of your life and it's going to change everything. And of course, all of us, if we could, anybody listening right now, if I said to you, hey, think of the biggest mistake you've made, what would you say to yourself in that moment? All of us could come up with something, right? But what's the thing that we can do moving forward to maybe you can't be forgiven for it but how do you redeem yourself Um, and what do we expect those that have have done these terrible things to do in order to redeem themselves and i think sincerity is the first component like if you're going to go in an interview and say i know it's bad to take my dick out like no you're just saying that so that we'll leave you alone that's pretty obvious but you know the michael vick thing it's impossible to know you know, are these charities being created and are, is he raising awareness because he truly feels bad about his actions? Or is he simply just trying to say, look, I, you know, I, I know it's bad to run a dogfighting ring. Yeah. And I would contrast that with um, Aziz's apology, which I saw and, you know, seems sincere. It's definitely a lot more sincere than I shouldn't take my dick out in front of people. So I think we will never know, honestly, if their actions are sincere. Only they will know that. And quite frankly, that's not something that any of us should even try to attempt to figure out. But I think the way in which you say something um, really does make a difference. And I think if you're going to stand up at the beginning of your special like Aziz did and say, you know, I did something that was really wrong and I regret it and I'm sorry, that's a lot different than I shouldn't take my dick out in public. So I think we can all agree on that. Um, But to Jake's point, like, we'll never really know if it was a PR stunt, you want to continue on your career, or if it was sincere. I know one of the things that I brought up was the importance of knowing the facts 
and before making any decisions. When, you know, as we close, I want to close with offering up to the, to the group. It seems unfortunate, although likely, that there will be other figures in the future who come to light whose contributions are tainted by private misdeeds. To your point, too, there are people that now, <laughs> currently, are figures that we appreciate, look to, right. et cetera. You know, not just people in the like, Currently, things are happening that we just don't know about, but we yep. will. Um, yep. So, And so... Does, you know, do you guys feel like there's something, you know, for the listeners, a way to approach these as they happen? You know, this, this conversation that we're having and these experiences that we're having in terms of how do we wrestle, wrestling with these issues, this is a more, much more recent thing, I think, in human history, and it seems like it's not going away. So is there any parting words of advice that you guys have? So you started it. I think the most, most important thing will always be to get as many of the facts as possible. I understand in a lot of the cases we won't be able to get the facts because it turns into a he said, she said a lot of the time, but doing independent research is very important in 2019 in so many different ways. Well, you know, Radhika, to follow up on, you know, first and foremost, pursue the facts. The second component of that is if you find facts that you don't like, don't dismiss them just because you don't like them. Um, and I was going to echo that. I was thinking, like, I struggle with that. I still haven't watched the R. Kelly documentary. I don't know if I will because there's enough ugliness in the world. I don't know if I actually want to seek it out. Um, but at the same time, if information is available, don't shy away from it. Make sure you go, go seek out the facts if they're there. That reminds me of my second point, which was I think the biggest problem well, I can't say the biggest problem in our society. There's so many of them to choose from. But one of the big issues in our society is people's unwillingness to admit that they made a mistake. So I think that this is present with Trump. I think there were a lot of people who voted for him who didn't expect things to turn out the way they did. And now for 2020, the question is, will those people be able to admit that they made a mistake or will they vote for him again because they have dug their heels in so far? I think that a lot of the people we've talked about, it's the same way, maybe not as consequential as a presidential election. But I, for this many years, have gone on supporting this person, say it's Michael Jackson, for example. Now, how, how all of a sudden can I change my entire stance? I think goes back to what Jake was saying, that they identify their own personalities, their own life experiences with this person. So by saying this person actually might have been a bad person, you are turning your back on your own life and your own path that you've paved for yourself. So I think that people have a really hard time admitting that they've made a mistake in judgment about somebody or something. And I think that's another thing. I'm I am one of those people. And that's why I've questioned this whole thing about Tiger Woods a lot. I've thought about it a lot because I have a visceral reaction. But am I justified in my anger towards my family about their support of Tiger Woods? That's. I think my advice would be um, to try to see both sides of the argument or both sides of the case or the corn, whatever you want to say. For example, Ray Rice and Michael Vick, I think it's horrible to abuse anyone, and that includes animals and people. However, the reason why I brought up their backgrounds and the fact that they're football players is because I think if you want to have a non-emotional objective reaction to things, um, you really need to understand the whole story and not just a small window of their life. Again, I am not 
saying what they did is excusable. I'm just saying that moving forward, we really need to get the whole picture before we make snap judgments about people or before we have reactions where we're just piling on mob mentality about, oh, really, this happened, this happened, this happened, and I'm going to place judgment without understanding the whole story. I think the piece of advice that I would want to leave our listeners with is to give yourself grace as you process and give that same grace to other people as they process as well. Obviously, this is a topic that is extraordinarily difficult. And just to say this is a topic is extremely reductive because this is something that is so specific to every individual case and individual transgressions that there's never going to be a correct answer that we can give a broad stamp on a case. Every person is going to perceive every incident differently. You need to give yourself room to have that process and be okay with the fact that it's very difficult to find an answer to this. And you need to recognize other people going through that process because part of the way we deal with it is having discussions like this one. And we all have different ways in which we approach each of the figures we've talked about. None of us is incorrect for having that. But because we were able to sit down and have this conversation and be able to have some level of reasonableness, I don't want to be someone who's sitting here preaching for like, oh, we need to all understand each other when people are spouting bullshit or whatever. But to be willing to recognize we're all going through something together and we all are going to need to be able to make some mistakes as we figure things out and to have differing opinions for where the line is is very crucial because without that willingness to have grace, it's only going to lead to more fracturing and therefore a greater inability to actually process this for ourselves when we don't have people we can process with. When I think, Jim, you're so right, and we five as lawyers, future lawyers, are, are looking for a definitive you know, black and white determination to be made and you know, to use the legal jargon, this is a fact-intensive inquiry, and every single one of these has to be done individually. And no matter what, you know, as, as you've alluded to, Jim, there is no right or wrong answer. I mean, sure, we can all agree that, you know, molesting children is bad, and we can all agree that beating women, so on and so forth, those are all terrible, terrible transgressions. And yet, there's no right answer, and there's no definitive rule as to how one should or should not process these people. I do think some people deserve to be canceled. I believe in forgiveness, but I don't and personally don't believe forgiveness is the end all be all. Like I don't feel obligated to forgive someone if I believe what they've done is so egregious. So I know cancel culture is like a big issue nowadays. I think it's okay. I think it's okay to cancel someone if they deserve it. But I do think that that should be um, contingent upon the facts and our willingness to face what we value as a society. Well, I want to thank the rest of the uh, Podvocate board for joining us today. This wasn't the easiest conversation, but I think this was in a way a kind of warped fun for us because it, because it touched on, some, on things that were so personal to us. Uh, and if there are things that are personal to you, we'd love to hear uh, your thoughts about this topic and any figures that maybe we didn't mention. Please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Have a safe and fun winter break. Thank you for joining us this season, and we will see you in the spring. That's all for 2019 from The Podvocate. 
Thank you for joining us throughout the fall. We'll be on a brief hiatus for winter break, but we'll be back with new episodes on January 29th. In the meantime, we always welcome your feedback on our episodes or suggestions for future topics via email at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Our producer is Jim Alretz. Our senior editor is Radhika Sutherland. Our associate editors are Haley Burridge and Jake Kupferman, and our editor-in-chief is Matt Doran. Special thanks, as always, to Dean Michael Kaufman for providing the resources needed to make this show possible. And thank you to our predecessors, the Dialogue De Novo team, for launching a podcast on our campus. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.